This is Agan Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Our today's guest, Alice Loy, is a co-founder of the world's first accelerator for creatives called Creative Startups. This particular accelerator aims to grow startups in the creative tech industries. It also includes Labs pre-accelerator created for idea stage entrepreneurs. Alice is also a funding partner at Da Vinci Ventures, focused on creative funders building story-driven experience and immersive companies, products, technologies, and a co-founder of an interdisciplinary design horizon fellowship at the University of Colorado Denver. She's an original investor in Mia Wolf, Native Realities and Embodied Labs. She's also a co-author of a book, Creative Economy Entrepreneurs from Startup to Success. On the top of it all, Alice is a frequent speaker and an occasional consultant on building creative economies through entrepreneurship. Alice, so fantastic to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for including me. Alice. There is a, always this discussion about creative industry. It's like kind of love. Everybody talks about it and nobody's seen it, right? <laughs> so how do you define creative industry? Oh, that's a great question. And it, it's interesting because I think the way maybe we've been, we, the collective global cadre of people working in the creative realm, have been defining it in a way that won't necessarily work moving forward. So I'll give you an example. Is Uber a technology or a taxi and transportation company? <laughs> We've really started to move away from the post-World War II industrial mechanized economy, finally into a fully digitized economy. And for creatives, that means that they may be software designers or they may be uh, vocalists and they work in the creative industries. So with that caveat, that everything is changing. And with COVID, we've got a global reset on the economy and everything's going to be very different for the next 20 to 30 years. The way we in the US define it is a little different from other folks around the world. We tend not to include software only because it's such an enormous industry here that it would skew our understanding around the data of the creative industries. But other than that, we tend to follow the same categories that people in Asia and Europe and Latin America. So architecture, design, advertising, theater, visual arts, gaming, animation, content for virtual reality, including design of goggles for virtual reality, food if it's particular to a particular region. So not McDonald's. But for example, here in New Mexico, we love our green chili. Mm -hmm. So that's a cultural, you know, kind of pillar for us and food that's New Mexican and and weaves together the culture and traditions of who we are with some some new interesting areas is an area we work in. The film industry, music, all of those fields uh, that have long stood as the creative industries, we include those in the US and then What's interesting is I think where it's going in terms of technologies that are for the creative industries, but maybe coming out of more deep tech development areas. Actually, there is an interesting conundrum, I would say, for anyone who thinks about creative startups, though, because when you think about technology, like you talk about Uber, 
these companies can become global companies, right? So they kind of span across the different countries and cultures and spaces and so on. But when we think about creative industries, some of them, of course, can be more global, but many of them are local, aren't they? And this is a challenge because like often, at least in Poland, when a company is more local, it never really gets the interest of investors simply because the growth opportunities are not necessarily as big as the investor would have imagined. So I'm curious how you approach that. You know, I think that's in some ways true in terms of scalability and the economics of scaling a particular business. When you take a software as a service, a SaaS business, it's really easy to understand how scalable those economics are. And that makes investors comfortable. Um, You know, people tend to make the mistake of thinking that investors in startups are somehow smarter than the rest of us, (laughs) or in in some way, more independent thinkers. And, And that's not true, unfortunately. So most investors like companies that are SaaS because they go, oh, I get the business model. I see how it could scale. That's easy to understand. I'll put my money there. However, uh, you also have companies like Meow Wolf, which some people are likening to a Disney. In It's not an easily scalable business, but it's an extremely profitable business and very creative and interestingly able to move into a new environment. So it could launch in Poland or it could launch in Singapore and have the flavor of that place, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit different maybe than a lot of SaaS companies. SaaS companies can't necessarily reflect the culture of Warsaw, right? That's not the purpose. It's, It's instead sort of a homogenized service for anybody who uses it. Whereas creatives get to say, well, if you can figure out a scalable business model and make it more attuned to the culture of a particular place, I think that is where some of the most exciting growth is happening because people, markets increasingly want things that look local and have a local flavor or sentiment or story, but have the efficiencies of something that's more replicable and predictable. You mentioned the word efficiencies. And I remember I was talking to the Meow Wolf crew a few years back when they launched their first venue in Las Vegas. And (laughs) creatives are not efficient people. Like I can imagine that there is a lot of potential startups that are more efficiency oriented than creatives and creatives are not really focused and they are not interested as much in efficiency, right? So Mm -hmm. again, this is a challenge for investors who have to, yeah, deal with that. There's a lot to be said for maintaining a continuum of everything from people who just make art and you're not even sure if there's a market for it and nobody cares. It's just important art because it questions who we are. What are the values of our society? How are we maintaining a democracy? Are we doing that very well? Let's be provocative with art to get people thinking about it, even though maybe nobody will pay for it. You know, we still need art that sparks human curiosity, connection, et cetera. But then you move up the chain and you might have something that is locally scalable. Or it's artwork that is, you know, it's Banksy, 
people want to buy it. It's art, but it's pretty commercial, right? And then you start moving into the realm of Meow Wolf, Disney, maybe Color Factory, where it's art, but it's actually really commercial. And it's wonderful as an experience, but it's also something that fits the economic demand right now in a really good way. When you get into that realm, you really need a lot of efficiency. And I think where we see creatives sort of quote win in that regard is they partner with business people mm-hmm. and they have to navigate together as a team, that tension of how much do we give up of our creative sort of vision and ability to just move into new crazy spaces for the purpose of needing to adhere to business principles and profitability and making sure people are making a good wage and all of the things that a business has to take into account. So it's really important to me in the same way that in the science and technology realm, you have basic research where there's not a purpose of economic gain. It's just discovery and learning and knowledge development. And the same same thing we need to hold tightly to with art. But then you have at the other end of the spectrum, Google, which is a highly profitable company, emerged from some basic research, you know, was transferred into the market, et cetera. So we have in the creative industries that same spectrum. We just don't have yet as much of a conversation around curating that spectrum and how we do it. There tends to be a shutdown and say, no, art should only be for art's sake. But in the same way that we would never say that about medicine or software or automotive safety technologies, right, that come out of a lab, we really shouldn't be holding ourselves back in terms of art. We just need to understand that there's a spectrum of purpose. Creative startups started from a realization that nobody really talks and helps people in creative industries, that they are not even in the fringes of interest, really, not let alone center. But if you look at it, like what are the main differences between the traditional, like more technology oriented startups and creative startups? Well, I think probably the main difference is just the amount of time that engineers and scientists have been afforded to rethink who they are along that spectrum of economic value or cultural value. And so for those of us in the creative sphere, it's a new conversation for us to think about, do we want to be business owners? How do we balance wanting to be really out of the box or cutting edge or disruptive with creativity? And how much do we need to make a living? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's also a fundamental tension that nobody is talking enough about around how much do we want to keep investing in the economy the way it is now. And I think a lot of us are concerned that if we partake, I know I have this concern, if I'm participating in the economy in the way it is now, am I feeding that wolf that is insatiable and seems to eat everything in sight? Or am I starting to nurture a new economy that's inclusive and built on equity and sustainability and is working to solve climate change instead of just voraciously contributing to it? So I think there's a conversation that we haven't as a creative community really pinpointed yet, but I think some of the discomfort is with participating in this economy now, it's great that creatives are getting so much attention. I mean, it's just on fire right now. Mm -hmm. 
And yet a lot of us are saying, really, I don't know if I want to be a part of your economy. Your economy is screwing up a lot of communities and landscapes and cultures and and that tension, you know, but here, here's where I come down on that. We have to be a part of the conversation. We can't say, well, it's all so screwed up that I'm just not going to partake because I fundamentally believe that creatives have a brilliant and beautiful way of understanding the world that comes from a fundamental place of community and culture instead of economics and capitalism. And, you know, it's really important to think about what's your starting point. And if your starting point is community and culture, then hopefully what you're building out of that is an economy that takes care of community through culture. So we can't sit out this next wave of building an economy. And yet it's really hard to figure out, okay, but if I'm a part of it, aren't I just contributing to the monster right now? Yeah, actually, this is a problem I ponder a lot about because you know, I'm I'm a creative myself, writing and designing. But at the same time, I'm I'm consulting with big companies using this creativity for their benefit, really. And uh, I keep on trying to think about what would be the next step. Like I am completely on board with you with regard of what this economy should be all about. However, dreaming about this versus doing the first step are the two different things. And I'm curious, how do you do this with uh, creative startups or whether you do do it with creative startups, just taking this step? That's such a great question. And it's something that we grapple with in part because being based in New Mexico, and I know you have a global audience, so I'll talk a little bit about New Mexico. Um, we are and have been forever one of the two or three poorest states in the country. We are about half the size of California, and we have a whopping 2 million people in our whole state. So New Mexico is large. It's desert. It's high desert. We have big mountains and skiing. We are home to 19 pueblos and three tribes in addition to the pueblos. So we culturally are very, very rich. Um, The pueblos have been here since forever. We have a Hispanic coming from the Spaniards tradition, and you get this rich cultural mix set against an extreme economic um, deficit, basically. So within our environment, people have tended to assume that we wouldn't have economic opportunity, but we could hold really tightly to our culture and who we are and being a really different place than the rest of the United States. That has meant that there's a poverty mentality in our state, which inhibits collaboration, inhibits creativity, inhibits an ability to sort of think bigger and think about growing the pie. Instead, we tend to think about how do I get my piece of the pie, which is really challenging when you're trying to build innovation ecosystems. So the way that we have tackled back to your question about how do we participate in the economy as it is now while trying to grow a new economy, we we have two values that I think I'll, I'll mention. One is we meet entrepreneurs where they're at. So we, we get comfortable with the idea that it's on us to be flexible and meet those entrepreneurs we're working with where they're at. If they don't have technology skills and they want to learn them, that's where they're at. 
And the way that we cover the cost, because there are real costs around being that flexible and, and slowing down to make room for people in our programs is we get grants that are outsized. So if we were a private company who only dealt with one kind of community or one population, we could do our work cheaper and faster. But because we're absorbing the cost of meeting people where they're at, we go after federal funds, we go after larger grants so that we can slow down and be walking in pace with communities. The other way that we're extremely explicit about some of the work around equity, and it's been true since we started the accelerator, 71 to 72 percent of the companies who have come through our program are founded by people of color or women. And we are frankly pretty zealous about counting. So we're planning a conference right now and we have a whole spreadsheet that marks out how many speakers are women, how many speakers are people of color, how many people are coming who don't have to pay, who could not afford to come otherwise. And we are just constantly counting, which can feel inauthentic at times. And yet the result is a really rich, diverse group of people. But we have to be kind of bean counters around it right now, because in the US, we have not done a good job, as you guys know, as the whole world knows, of creating equitable opportunities for people. So we have to, again, absorb the cost of making sure that that happens. Those are the two ways, I think, meeting people where they're at and constantly counting and holding ourselves accountable to a higher standard around diversity. Those are two ways that we are trying to say, well, we can't replicate the, the economic problems we have doing business as standard practice. We need to at least do these two things. And these are beautiful first steps to take. And there, there will be many steps, but if we don't get this done, the next step won't even be possible, right? Because it will still, right. it won't be equal in a sense that not everybody will have the rightful place to participate in that change, really. I've heard so many stories from female entrepreneurs who were telling how much more they had to prove themselves as worthy investment comparing to male entrepreneurs and usually white male entrepreneurs. That's, it's just super upsetting. So I'm curious, who are the investors for these startups? Because this is the other side of this, <laughs> this whole medal, That's right? Coin. Yeah. Who is investing in the creative economy? Um, so we're seeing a rising interest in the United States in what people are calling the creator economy. And really what they're saying is we're investing in tools and platforms where creators can sell their services or products. I have not yet seen that that changes or uh, improves the economic outlook for creatives in a substantial way. And I think we're probably all familiar with the statistics around Kickstarter, unfortunately has a beautiful mission and yet 30 to 40% of Kickstarter projects fail, not fail to raise money, fail to follow through, which means that those creatives are not getting what they need in terms of building a business which is the long-term shift that they need to change their economic outlook and really own their creative process. 
So that platform hasn't proven as, as awesome as we hoped. Spotify, as we know, 1% of artists actually earn something like 92% of all of the income on Spotify. So that's clearly not working for musicians. <laughs> I'm not 100% sold on the platform model in terms of changing both the power dynamic for creatives where they get to own their creative destiny or the economic opportunity where they get to own their economic opportunity. I think there is interesting conversation around what some people are calling the ownership economy and questioning how creatives or creators um, can own more of their economic future. We're seeing DAOs, which are distributed autonomous organizations, people come together as artists. Like collectives. Yeah, basically collectives, digital collectives. I think shared ownership of NFTs and other digital assets is a really interesting area for creatives to think about. So who are the investors who are backing this? Right now, I'm still seeing that it's primarily tech investors, which is problematic in that they bring a tech mentality. So we're not yet seeing a new version of investors who are starting first from the place of lifting up creators and creatives as business owners and economic leaders. Um, instead, we're seeing tech investors applying basically the Silicon Valley principles around growth at all costs and painting a coat of creator on top of it. Mm -hmm. I think that will continue to change. I think the way it changes is more creators and creatives who come out of owning a business and have wealth turn around and invest in other creators because they have the capacity to understand a new way of investing in creativity because they think about it all the time. That totally makes sense. So for example, Gila Liberté out of Cirque um, in Montreal, Cirque du Soleil, he would think about investing in companies in a different way in that he took investment for Cirque as they, I think they're about 20, 25 years old before they raised serious outside capital, but he would have a different way of understanding how to invest in creative businesses and what's possible mm -hmm. than your standard, going back to that standard sort of SaaS investor who just looks for replication and, and scale. If I go back a little bit to the idea of startups around uh, creative, activities. What you told us till now was that where you operate in New Mexico, the situation is, is very specific, but you also wrote a book. So there must be some more universal lessons for people who are creative and are trying to start the business. Obviously, they can get a lot of advice coming from the usual, like the, the tech entrepreneurship. But what are the differences they should pay attention to in their own respective fields? So we work all over the world. We've done accelerators in the Middle East. Our next program is in Peru. Um, and you're right that all over the world, creatives are facing somewhat similar opportunities and challenges. Um, and I think some of the most interesting areas for creatives comes back to how to take your local culture, whether it's stories about local place, or food or music or dress, weave that with disruptive technologies and identify where there is a gap in the market, where there is need in the market. For example, we've been talking about how NFTs 
Non-fungible tokens could be used to sell Peruvian food. Our next program is a food accelerator in Peru. And how local advertising companies and chefs in Peru could work together to create NFTs around Peruvian food. Those are the kinds of ideas that I don't have a concrete answer, but if I were an entrepreneur in Peru and I loved food and I wanted to start doing something in, in that domain, I wouldn't be thinking about starting a pupusa shop. I would be thinking about some of these very different intersections of technology, where markets are trending, um, and the fact that people definitely want to buy things that are about their own story, their own place. The next thing I would say, though, is entrepreneurs in every single sector anywhere in the world, because this must be human nature, tend to say, what do I want to do? And that is not the right question to ask. The right question is, what problem is going unsolved that I can uniquely solve? And it may be that what people want to pay you to do is not what you want to do. It's sort of that famous old you know, story about she was a great baker, so she opened a muffin shop and she really hated it because all she did was bake all day long. And it turned out she liked it as a hobby, not as a 12 hours a day, right? Mm. There is a question for any entrepreneur to think about is what the market wants to pay me to do what I want to do every single day. And if it isn't, then rethink, rethink, because entrepreneurship is a, you know, when you're starting out at 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And if you don't really love solving the problem that people want to pay you to solve, you're going to struggle to want to get up early every day and you won't, you won't succeed. Yeah. You won't have the patience and the perseverance to stick to it. Right. And the fire in your belly to find new ways to solve problems for those same customers. Oh, yeah. Because everything changes and evolves so much that if your business is food NFTs for, you know, advertising food in Peru, well, in five years, it's going to be completely different. And you have to love helping Peruvian chefs stay ahead of the market. If you're obsessed with that, then you'll say, oh, we used to do NFTs. Now we do something else. And you have a fire in your belly to pursue that next solution for your customers. Without that, your customers will see that you don't really care and you just, you'll hate going to work mm. every day. So why be an entrepreneur? You know, part of the quote benefit of being an entrepreneur is hopefully you're mostly doing what you want to do every day. And that's a beautiful thing for a human. I used to toy with an idea of doing something which was more entrepreneurial. And I think I'm entrepreneurial in my own way, like creating content and stuff like this. But having an idea of running a company <laughs> was something that was making me go like, Argh! so I was thinking, okay, like probably not a way for me. I think that for a lot of creatives, it's like getting to understand where they are having enough interest sustained interest to stick to it and to keep on going and doing these things over and over and over again, having enough passion for the core of the business to keep on loving it. I think it's fair to yeah. say that not everyone can and should be an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's clearly a choice. If you are a successful artist, maybe that's the sweet spot, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you are an artist 
and your work is something that you just naturally hit upon a market demand for your work, your aesthetic or medium fit what the market wanted. That's a beautiful, lucky thing. Most of us have to say, well, I'm pretty good at this, but I think I need to shift about 20 degrees because what the market really wants to pay me for. You know, one of the challenges we're seeing in the United States, at least, and I say this having a daughter who's an artist, is this disingenuous promise from universities and colleges that uh, if you love playing the violin, you could make a living doing that. That's not true in 99% of cases. Um, and it could be that we need to say not everybody is going to be that very fortunate artist where people just want to pay you to make what you want to make. Because people would say, well, if I'm not just true to my artistic vision, how many artists are lucky enough that their artistic vision fits the market zeitgeist right now? Not after they are dead, right? Because that happens more it, often. It's usually after they're dead. Yes. <laughs> and they were before their time. And so they don't even get the benefit of that. Now, it could be that you're an artist, you know, we all think of maybe Picasso or Pollock or some of these folks who became very wealthy for their heirs, but not during their lives, right? It could be that you say, well, I don't care. I'm going to just make my art. And I don't care if I'm struggling and living out of my car. And that's a super legit way to live your life, right? But again, to your point that you guys are making is you, you have to make a conscious decision about that. I've been really obsessed with the idea of ambiguity lately. And I think most of human culture is all around eradicating ambiguity. We're terrible about ambiguity. We want answers. And entrepreneurship is by definition like the land of ambiguity, And it can be exhausting to just get comfortable with, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it'll go. We're just trying. We'll see how it goes. That sort of feeling of winging it, even if you're very planned out, very strategic, yada, yada. I'm guessing you didn't know there was a pandemic coming. Right? <laughs> And that, that can be an exhausting place to live for some people. I have one child who would probably do fine in that world and one who would be miserable every day operating in this space of ambiguous. I don't know what's going to happen. We can't control everything. We just try and do what we can. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an, a question that people should ask completely separate from creative and market and blah, blah, blah. It's just, who are you? Are you okay with every day could be different than whatever you hoped it was? You mentioned the education, and I think that this is one of the things that should be mandatory curriculum is to understand the ways to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty, because obviously our world is not getting any more certain or clear in that sense. We both have research background, so we've been working at the edge where you don't even know whether something is possible in the first place. So ambiguity is your daily bread and butter. And for us uh, both, dealing with it is just like a second nature. But whenever we work with different companies, we can see that when we say, let's say we come with a project, but we cannot promise you the outcome because we don't know that outcome yet. It will be good. It's just like, you know, it might go in that direction or maybe in that direction. And they go scared. But that direction is like you said, like 20 degrees left or right. We know it's possible. So yes, we will arrive there. That's a promise. I mean, there is no way around it. 
So for us, it was a, a big relief and we work with the companies that you know it's possible. You just don't know, you know how expensive it will be, how exactly it will look. But I have a very strong suspicion that this is the schools and especially universities who instill this kind of thinking in our heads. Because when we were kids, we would just say, hey, let's go play. We wouldn't, you know, make a, a plan of the like, beginning of the game and the middle and the, of the play, not the game. And schedule our, our whole day before getting out of the house. I mean, no, we just, you know, wing it. We lose it somewhere in the education system. Yeah, I agree. I, I was in a conversation with some folks yesterday talking about, in the U.S. at least, we talk about Gen Z, which is folks who are, I think, about 24 and younger years old. And they seem to be very uncomfortable with the idea of just making stuff up. Mm. Sort of, what are we doing for dinner? Is there a pre-made meal? There's a ton of food in the house, but none of it is already predefined as it's this. So something very rudimentary like that, or um, what are we doing for vacation? What's our whole plan? Or how do I get a job? What website do I go to? Um, and you guys are maybe the same age where for me, when I was 15 and needed a job, I started knocking on doors and I had no idea. I had no skills. I was 15, but it was okay that you just knocked and you said, well, I'm smart and I'll work hard and I'll show up on time and okay, you get a job, you know, <laughs> there are so many expectations around predefined routes to solve a problem. And it's dangerous for creativity. And it, I think it's dangerous for social change. How are we going to come up with new solutions? Because the problems we're reaching now, there's no way to know they're coming. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned the pandemic that just put everything upside down. We have to deal with it, right? Yeah. And climate change is rendering whole economies obsolete. Um, how are we going to deal with that? There is no path. We need to invent that. And yet, you know, on the flip side, so people get down about young people, I know, but I feel very optimistic actually around both the creative economy and building a more inclusive and equitable economy because millennials and Gen Zers in the United States anyway, they are attuned that way. They think first about their fellow citizens. It's really interesting when you go to campuses in the United States right now, whether it's high school or college, they're wearing masks, they're vaccinated. They're taking precautions in ways that 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds are not. They have a sense of obligation to their community and to taking care of each other in a way that I think the United States lost after the World War II, you know, our greatest generation. They had that same sense. Mm -hmm. And then the boomers and my generation, the, the Gen Ys, we sort of said, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. And now we're swinging back to generations of young people who are saying, how do we take care of each other? And that is moving forward. I mean, it always has been, but especially moving forward, that has to be the driving question around our economies. How do we take care of one each other? Absolutely. So what do you love most about your job then? Oh, God. I mean, the hardest thing for me in the pandemic is I don't get to hang out with entrepreneurs, mm. you know, all the social isolating and stuff. And I love entrepreneurs. I love it. That's what gets me going. So anytime I get to talk to an entrepreneur, that's always the highlight of my day. <laughs> 
I admire them. I'm an okay entrepreneur, but when I meet an entrepreneur who is just mind blowing, it opens up a new way for me to understand the world. And I just admire them so much. Um, I love, love seeing forms of creativity and art. I'm not an artistic person. It's a stretch for me to understand how people see the world in that way and can create engagement with the world through art. So I love that. I love spreadsheets. I do love planning and, and building out spreadsheets. I love my team, creative startups. We, we always have a great team of people who respect each other and enjoy working together. Um, and we've pulled through the pandemic really well, which I think is a blessing. Yeah. I would say normally I love that I get to travel, but I haven't been traveling at all lately. Yeah. So how do you deal with uncertainty? That's a good question. So I've been running creative startups a long time and I used to get really wound up with what I call the roller coaster. You know, you get down in these lows and I still get knocked off my horse. We had a project fall through that I thought was a, a sure thing that was a beautiful project. So exciting. And at the last minute it fell through and, and that put me into the doldrums a bit. But as I've run the organization longer and longer, I've become more comfortable with the idea of the highs and lows and waiting through and just being patient and saying, you know what, another high will come and just let go of being subject to the roller coaster and everything's okay. Um, I still get a little, you know, caught up sometimes when I'm really high or really low. And I don't mind, you know, the uncertainties around revenue and all that kind of stuff I'm okay with. It's more the energy and projects working with amazing people. When that falls through, that's when I'm upset. What is your personal practice of getting things done? Oh, uh, it's so good we're on a podcast because if you could see my office right now, it's a complete mess. <laughs> you know, creative startups, we are known for getting things done. We're very good at operations. We spend a lot of time as a team building a culture of both accountability and support. And I think that helps. I write everything down. I right now literally have about 30 post-its that I've been collecting and I need this weekend to sit down and collect them all into my notebook and go through and see what I still have to get done. I write everything down and we use a lot of technology. We like to use Slack. We like to use Google Sheets. We like to use WhatsApp, but we, we don't use it to the point where we forget to call each other because we've been isolated now. We haven't been in the office now for two years and um, we still make it a point to connect on a personal level as a team so that we overcome the communication gaps. Because you know, sometimes if you get too, everything is email, somebody says, gosh, she sent me a nasty email. When it wasn't a nasty email, she just was sick that day. Mm -hmm. We try to keep up our level of interpersonal disconnection on Zoom or phone or whatever. And then that gives more flexibility around some of our tech tools to be shorthand with each other. I think that a lot of uh, companies struggle with exactly that, like losing this humane side of interactions through the lockdowns and the pandemic and being remote. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have any rules about being in the office or anything like that. We're also a really small team. I can see, though, why larger companies feel like they need people to be back in the office because 
you, you know, you don't have those moments around the water cooler where you connected in a fun way. So now you can go get that annoying project with that client done. <laughs> yeah. And it, it does make it harder for people, I think, to work together when we don't get to just have those moments of being humans together. Hey, how'd your kid's soccer team do this weekend? And and there's not really room for that right now. So we we try and make room for that. The other thing is we joke around a lot at mm-hmm. creative startups. You know, we'll put up ridiculous um, giffies in Slack and and that helps kind of lighten the mood. And Just out of curiosity, how big is this team that you are part of? So before the pandemic, I think we were 10 or 11 people. Right now we're about seven or eight. Mm. Okay, that's really possible to keep these uh, connections basically going yes. all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Helps. So what is the thing that you recently did that you are most proud of? Well, on the personal side, the thing I'm most proud of is we sent our daughter to college and she found the college she wanted to go to. And um, as a working mom, you know, I've always tried to, I wouldn't say balance. I'm not great at balance and I wouldn't ever actually try and fool myself that I am. But somehow we've been able to raise two kids who, despite a pandemic and a lot of challenges, um, we launched a daughter into a college that she's very happy to be at. And that's by far over the last year, my most proud um, sort of moment. On the work side, um, I would say we have continued to serve as many entrepreneurs throughout the pandemic as pre-pandemic. So we shifted really fast and said, what do people need? What do the entrepreneurs need? We launched new online tools that were free. Um, We revamped our curriculum. We went out and found mentors to talk to the issues around the pandemic. And we hustled. We knew that keeping the energy high and the positivity and sense of potential high for entrepreneurs was important. And so we tried to help carry that load. So we worked last year, 2021, we worked with about 250 entrepreneurs. Um, Wow, that's 20 a month. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some of that is light touch, mm-hmm. right? They can do a couple workshops. Some of that is longer, you know, multi-week. And I think I'm really proud that we stood up for creative entrepreneurs and said, what do you need? We can help build it. Oh, so yeah. cool. Yeah. So if you were to think about your audience and our audience, which is probably quite overlapping, and uh, you were to think about the book that you would recommend to them so they do things, they really go out and do stuff that they love to do. What would that be? Well, that's a good question. I don't know about a book. Um, For a while, people in the US at least were really into the getting things done. It's called GTD. And there are two things that came away from that for me. I never really got into it. My husband was really into it. I stole two ideas from that that I think should become religious for people. One, write it down. If you write it all down and like on a Saturday morning where you have some time and some clarity and you write everything down that you're supposed to do, then you take that mess of anxiety in your head about all the stuff you're supposed to get done and you put it on a piece of paper and then it's just in front of you and you just go down the list. The other thing that I am pretty religious about is I do it right now. If it takes less than two minutes, I do it right now. Even if I feel a little rude, because I'm like, you know what? You asked me to send that email and right now on the phone, I'm going to send that email and you're going to wait a second while I do it. (laughs) Because I figure people would rather wait a second while I do it than have me forget and never do it. 
And that keeps those little two minute things from collecting and becoming this epic grab bag of stuff I'm supposed to get done. So those are the two things, write it all down. And if it takes two minutes or less, do it right now. So the recommendation is read at least the intro to the book, Getting Things Done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Were, you were religious about it too. For yeah, yeah. Time. It helped me. Enormous. Exactly. Those two that you mentioned, they, they are basically the starting points and they take like, you know, 70% of the task management are just those two things. Especially yeah, like the, it, getting the anxiety of, I remember that day when I did this for the first time ever. Holy isn't cannoli. It it's amazing. It's like, oh, oh, and it becomes totally manageable because you're looking at it and you're like, oh, well, half of this I could just do today. And it's like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. And yeah. it just all becomes something that's just written down. You're just going to do it and then you move on. And it's amazing how many things, the other thing, and this is a dirty little secret, if it's not really important, wait to see if you really have to do it. Because I find that by the end of the week, you're like, you know what, that guy's never going to follow through. So I'm just not doing that for him. And you say, I'll wait a week if he emails and then he never does. So you're like, well, I'm glad I didn't worry about it. You know, <laughs> that used to be Lukasz's practice since forever. And I'm learning this now because I was always meticulous in answering everything and I'm saying like mm, how about that I drop a few things and see whether someone picks them up and often they are not especially if it's their problem it's not important enough for them to reach <laughs> out why should I worry so well said exactly so well said I always enjoy speaking with you Aga Lucas it's been wonderful to meet you Congratulations on the podcast. It's fantastic. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you for was... being a guest on it, making it even more fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, we will continue that conversation. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. Well, you can put that out there all you want. I am fine with that.